Well, friends, I'd like to direct your attention to Isaiah chapter 45, verses 20 through 25. That'll be our text this morning. Isaiah 45, verses 20 through 25. And this is the last of our five sermons in this part of Isaiah for now. Uh, Greg is returning from vacation. Next Sunday will be his first Sunday back with us, and he'll be back in the pulpit. I believe back in Colossians where he left off, so looking forward to that. But I am grateful to be here one more time in Isaiah. It's been a, a treat for my own soul to get to see God reminding me of who he is, reminding us together of who he is and how he saves. So I'm going to read our text this morning and pray for God's blessing to start our time. This is again Isaiah 45. Verses 20 through 25. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for speaking to us your life-giving words. We thank you for the way that your word reveals your character, reveals our nature and our sin and our great need of redemption. And we thank you most of all about how your word reveals the word, the eternal son that you sent to be our redemption, to be our reconciliation to you, to give his life as an atonement for our sin and to rise again and grant new life to all who believe. And whether, for anyone in this room, whether some have not come to trust Jesus yet, and for all of those of us who do trust him now, we all need to see what you have to say to us in your word. We need to hear from you. So we pray that you would open our ears and open my mouth to proclaim as a faithful ambassador the things that you are saying to us. Please do wonderful things in our lives, in our hearts. Bring about a response of faith and glad obedience to what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had an experience when life collided into some kind of troubling development which left you disoriented and disrupted? Maybe it's the death of a loved one. Maybe a divorce. Maybe a massive financial or health disaster. Maybe you were laid off from your job. Maybe a close friendship crumbled. As terrible as these events can be, God has a wise way of using them to get our attention about the issues that really matter. 
And this morning we're back in Isaiah as the Lord continues his sustained argument against false gods. And if you've been with us for some of these times in Isaiah, this is a familiar theme. For us who live in the 21st century West, a critique of idolatry might feel like an irrelevant time capsule from history. We don't have gods in our houses that we set up and bow to. We don't really have friends that do that, probably. But as we'll discuss, the heart of idol worship is a universal human problem that extends without any decrease or any interruption all the way down to our own time and our own lives. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul applies the label of idolatry to the vice of covetousness. He calls covetousness idolatry. Why? Because covetousness does to money and possessions what every form of idolatry does to some created thing. And that is, it substitutes something else into God's place in our hearts. And whatever else we may claim to believe, our gods are functionally the things we pray to, as it were. And I'm drawing on language from our text. They're the things we pray to. If not explicitly praying, again, we're not necessarily recognizing it as worship, but the things we feel we absolutely need. The things that we see as a fountain of life and well-being to us. The things that we would feel absolutely devastated to lose. And we're all prone to putting our trust in false gods that can't do anything, much less hear our prayers and come to our aid. When we do this, we turn away from the Lord, Yahweh, which means the I am. He is the I am. He's the one who made us. He's the one who rules over heaven and earth. And he's the only one who's able to hear our prayers and to save us. And more than just us, he's the one who's able to guide history according to his wise and good plan. So why do we do this? Why do we turn away from God? Why is the worship of things that aren't God such a timeless problem among mankind? And why does this temptation remain so sticky for us, even us who have come to know the true God through his son, Jesus Christ? Well, idols appeal to us because ultimately they allow us to be our own masters. And if that sounds strange, let me explain. When we turn aside from our creator, we assume a kind of authority over ourselves. And we exercise that self-appointed authority by choosing our own idols. And you might say, well, doesn't idol worship mean submitting ourselves to something else, though? A false god? Isn't it just a different god that we're submitted to? Well, yes. But even while we're depending on our idols, we still have to prop them up with our own investment. In some way, our idols are a reflection of ourselves and our own self-deification. We hold them up even as we lean on them and expect them to hold us. So for an example of this, consider among many possible idols, consider career. If I'm living for my career... And if I draw my life and my hope and my ultimate joy out of that realm of life, then what kind of life am I signing up for? Can I rest secure in the arms of my career as it carries me through its wise and loving care? Absolutely not. If I choose to make career my idol, I'm making the choice to heavily invest in my career, 
to make my career my God, I have to hustle and push and strain to make it an overwhelming success. Because I've attached such ultimate value to this good, I'm forced to pour all my effort and thought and passion into this realm of life. So that maybe, just maybe, it can deliver on its promises and give me the happy, fulfilled, flourishing that I'm seeking. So idols allow us to pretend that we can transcend our rightful place as lowly, dependent creatures. And it feels good for a time. It feels good when it's working. Yet the outcome is always the same. It's shame and disappointment. In this life, our idols can't guide history Or even personally, they can't guide our lives according to any kind of good and and coherent purpose. And that's just in this life. Eternally, they lead to ruin. The ruin that faces all who remain separated from the true God. So in view of this idolatry problem that so plagues and tempts all of us, God has a message for us. A message that calls our eyes back to him as the fountain of life. And this is what he has to say to us this morning. Turn your heart from idols to the living and true God. Turn your heart from idols to the living and true God. In this, our last text in Isaiah, in this current series, we see the Lord continuing his sustained appeal for the trust of his people as the only God, the creator, ruler, and savior. Previously, he informed his covenant nation, Israel, that they would go into exile at the hand of the mighty Babylonians for their sins. And then more recently, we've heard that he instills hope in them by predicting a surprising deliverer, the Persian king Cyrus, who would in about 150 years from this time arise and conquer many nations, including the Babylonians. And by doing that, he would become God's instrument for returning Israel to their land to their city, Jerusalem, and to their temple where they worship the Lord. Now this week we're still hearing about the implications of this future prediction about Cyrus. And in our text this morning, what the scene that sort of metaphorically God sets is that he brings us into the courtroom and he adjourns a trial. And so he leads us through this courtroom scene, this trial in three movements. The first is in verses 20 to 21. First, God summons idolaters to court and shows us that we have no case. That's verses 20 and 21. God summons idolaters to court and shows us that we have no case. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God They cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. In verse 20, God addresses the survivors of the nations and calls them to assemble for this disputation. This could also be translated like refugees. Who are these refugees? They're clearly a group of Gentiles, non-Jews, because they worship false gods instead of the I am, the only true God, and they are of the nations. So he's envisioning the aftermath of Cyrus's devastating conquest, which will leave a lot of people jaded and displaced and disappointed survivors. 
Now, in those days, people believed that their wars were echoes on the material plane of cosmic warfare taking place in the heavens between each side's respective gods. So if you have two nations that are rivals and they're fighting, their gods are fighting against each other at the same time. So if you're a Babylonian and Cyrus conquers you, your gods have just failed you. Your gods just lost. They've been overpowered. And as a result, you who trust them have been put to shame. Now back at the beginning of this chapter, when God first predicted Cyrus's conquest, the context there was the Lord telling Israel how he would save them. This is his means for saving Israel. But now he's zooming back and he's widening the lens to show us how this saving purpose through this event will actually extend beyond Israel. That actually God will redeem Israel, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of all the nations. Because his salvation for them will show his character and his uniqueness to all of the world in a way that calls all of our attention away from idols. Now, there's something especially wise and timely about confronting their idolatry at the very moment of peak disappointment and despair. These are people who have lost and are refugees. And he's saying, come, let's talk. It's in times of great loss that we find ourselves shaken and uncertain and unusually open to reevaluating our lives. Of course, here we have a nation that's, that's losing a war, that has lost a war. Think of other losses in realms like sports or money or school or health or love. And how they could shake us into rethinking the deepest and most important things of life. As a college student, I personally struggled with idolizing academics. I had always been a successful student, and I unwittingly learned to locate my identity and well-being in my academic performance. And things went pretty smoothly that way until they didn't. And there was a distinct moment. It was the first math midterm of my second term of college. And I went in there and I sat down and I opened the exam and I pretty much walked into a buzzsaw. And I'm looking at the questions and I feel completely unprepared for the problems I'm seeing. And I'm completely unsure about the answers I'm giving. The only one thing that's certain to me is I'm going to get a bad score. And some of you might not think that's a very big deal. But for me, because of the way my heart idolized academic performance, it felt like the sky was falling. My world was shaken from its foundations. And I, it was, was happening in my heart. I was thinking, if I'm not good at school, if I'm not good at math, I was always good at math. If I'm not good at math, what am I good for? Who even am I? It was a disorienting and disturbing, and of course, in hindsight, ultimately, by God's grace, it was a very helpful experience. But this is just a small taste of what we can imagine a defeated nation would feel. Their gods have failed them. And perhaps you've had moments in your life, like I asked earlier, disorienting moments of disappointment or loss or failure. At the beginning of the next chapter, of course, the discussion kind of continues. A chapter division isn't, isn't a hard break. At the beginning of chapter 46, we see this image of the Babylonian gods Bel and Nebo that are being carried away on carts by their worshipers. These are probably the refugees taking their gods with them. That's probably what God is talking about here in verse 20. People caring about their wooden idols. And he's saying, look at yourselves. Look at what you're doing. They have no knowledge. He's saying, what, what is so foolish and ignorant about idolatry 
is that you're blind to these terrible and shameful ironies. You are carrying around your gods. You are providing transportation for your gods because they can't move themselves. And they're made of wood. They're created stuff like you. I've mentioned in the past that pagans believed that their gods were not transcendent and separate from the world, that they were a part of the world. The biblical God is different in that he is transcendent from the world. But this uh, word wooden is definitely a jab at that point. These wooden gods are just created stuff just like you. They're made of stuff. They depend on you for transportation. And you keep on praying to them for help. When it's clear by now, they obviously can't help you. I mean, in a way, being overrun by Cyrus is actually a great mercy for these people because it exposes the utter bankruptcy of their false gods. There's just nothing there, y'all. Can't you see that? Now, we read praying as a purely religious act, but consider the heart of it. It's trusting and seeking aid from another. That's the universal heart of idolatry. Again, whether we're consciously praying in a religious sense or not, it's this heart that goes, I need you, I depend on you, crying out to that thing or that good. In my experience, it was as though the hand of God's providence were telling me, you have no knowledge praying to the God of academic performance that can't save you. But God doesn't stop there. In verse 21, he invites them, again, this is a courtroom scene, to make their best argument. It's like his way of saying, you don't have one. Go ahead, talk about it, take counsel, come up with your best argument, take your best shot. You have none. And then he sets himself forth in contrast. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? It's like he's saying, your gods couldn't save you from a foreign king. They utterly failed and put you to shame. But consider me. Consider the Lord, the I am. Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? Declared what? Well, it's the Cyrus prediction. Leading up to this point, God has repeatedly made the argument that predicting the future is a key proof of deity. Way back in chapter 41, verse 23, which I think we uh, went through like four year, three or four years ago in Isaiah, he challenged the false gods and he says this, mockingly, you can hear the, the mockery in his voice, tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm. Here, just do anything. <laughs> doesn't matter. Do something evil, do something good. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Just show us you can do something, that you have a pulse. Predict something in the future and do it. Show us that you can tell us the future, that you control history. And immediately after that, he goes on to tell us that he will, in fact, do something. He will stir up a king to conquer for him. And that's the first reference to Cyrus. He's not named there yet. But that's the same argument he's bringing back here. I alone can predict the future because I'm the only God. There's no other. Because I named Cyrus back now, it's about 700 B.C., and he's going to arise in about 550 B.C., you have a paper trail right here. You have proof that I can do what your pitiful false gods could never dream of doing, which is predicting and carrying out a specific major world event. And not just doing it randomly, but doing it for a distinct purpose to save Israel. That's why he says, a righteous God and a Savior. So what about us? I've shared with you about an idol that I've struggled with. What about you? What are the created things that you keep on praying to that can't save you? 
What are the gods that you carry around, pouring yourself into them so that they can deliver to you your deepest needs? Again, false gods depend on our investment. They don't carry us. We carry them. What are the earthly things into which you're tempted to pour all your attention, effort, passion, perhaps even your money and your health? Where are the wells you look to for truth and goodness and beauty and hope and peace and a pervasive sense of well-being? What are the goods, the relationships, the activities, the roles that you would be utterly devastated to lose? There is one sense in which the United States is today is like Babylon in Isaiah's time. A dominant political order whose citizens tend to feel secure and invincible. What if we were to suffer a collapse like they will at this point from the prophecy to future uh, from this perspective? If America, as you and I know it, fell apart, would it shake our world at its foundation? Now, it's good to be grateful for the many blessings we have living here. But there is a difference between gratefully enjoying God's gifts and displacing God with other objects of our dependence and desire. So here's what God is saying to us about these false gods. If you keep on praying to these idols, they're still not going to save you. They haven't yet, have they? They can't deliver on their promises, nor do they return the investments that you pour into them. At the same time, he sets himself before us, the only God the righteous one, the Savior. He alone can do things. He alone does hear prayer. He alone does good. So now we've seen the futility of the false gods. Let's look further at how he invites us to himself. And so as we continue our courtroom scene, the second phase is in verses 22 to 23. Second, God offers us a generous plea bargain. God offers us a generous plea bargain. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall never return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. You probably know what a plea bargain is. Look, we all know you're guilty. You know it. We know it. Let's settle this before we have to go to court between us and you'll get a favorable sentence. At this point, God has laid out the devastating charges against the ignorance and futility of the nations who worship false gods. What would we naturally expect to come next? You're guilty. Now here's your sentence of condemnation. But God takes a surprising turn away from that expectation. He has laid bare the shameful, misplaced trust of men. He has stripped away the fig leaves from Adam and Eve, as it were. But instead of leaving his opponents in the shame of their nakedness, he moves toward them in mercy and extends the offer of a covering. We see in verse 22 an appeal for the nations to leave behind their foolish ways and return to him. Think about where verse 21 left off. There's only one God, and he calls himself a savior. There's no one besides me. I'm a savior. So what that means is if there's any saving that's going to get done... He'll have to be the one who does it. And the good news for all the nations is that he's not just a savior for Israel. The only God who is, is a savior for everyone. And he could rightfully heap condemnation on these pagan idolaters, but he's a savior. He'd rather save than condemn. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. So in verse 22, he calls them to know him as Savior. And and then verse 23, he calls them to know him as Lord. And these aren't two separate steps. This is not a multiple choice selection. He is both. He is Savior and Lord. He is a gracious restorer of ruined sinners. And he is a ruling master who has every right to command honor and worship. He says to these devastated and disappointed nations, Yes, your gods have failed you. Yes, your gods cannot help you. I'm the one who rules history, and I'm a Savior. So turn your hearts to me in faith, and I will save you. Verse 22 is an offer. It's, it's arms open saying, come to me. Verse 23 then is a prediction that he loads up with all the weight of his authority. When he says, by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. It's like he's saying, mark this as surely as I am God. This prediction cannot fail. I won't walk it back. Everyone will acknowledge that I'm the Lord. We heard back when when we heard from Philippians 2 in our scripture reading about Paul quoting from verse 23 here and applying it to Jesus, the eternal son of God who made himself a servant and took on human nature and obeyed God to the point of death on behalf of sinners. And his exaltation coming back up from that death ends with this climax that Jesus himself takes the place that Yahweh claims in Isaiah 45, 23. And we read in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What we learn is the whole Bible develops this idea is that the divine identity and the divine name Yahweh belongs equally to God the Son, as it does to God the Father, and also to God the Holy Spirit. That is, this Yahweh, this I Am, who speaks in Isaiah, is the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that for people to bow to Jesus Christ as Lord is to fulfill God's prediction from verse 23. What does it convey to bow a knee? It acknowledges lordship and authority as God. Now, that can go one of two ways. And I believe that both of these are in view here because it says everyone will do it. This is something everyone's going to do is bow their knee. For those who have heeded the offer in verse 22, and those who have turned to him for salvation, this is bowing their knee in glad submission. This is worship. This is what faith does. It gladly receives Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It doesn't mean obeying his lordship in order to receive his salvation. It's receiving his salvation through a faith that receives him for all he is, Lord and Savior. But for those idolaters who don't hear and or don't heed his offer of salvation in life, this is a different kind of bowing. This is teeth gritted, servile, cowering, defeated bowing. Psalm 66.3 says, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. It's that kind of bowing. And our ESV ends verse 23 with the, the phrase swear allegiance. That translates a single word swear. 
In other words, that allegiance is kind of an inference about what do you mean by swear? What kind of swearing is going on? I believe it's better to take swear at the end of verse 23 in the same way that God uses it of himself at the beginning of verse 23. By myself, I have sworn. It's the same word. Uh, The NIV does a good job of keeping these two in parallel. By myself, I have sworn. And then at the end, by me, every tongue will swear. What is God doing when he swears by himself? He's banking his word on his infinite divine trustworthiness. He's saying, as sure as my nature is true and incapable of error or deceit, so I stamp all of that authority and trustworthiness on what I'm about to say right now. And that's what people are doing here. It's another way of affirming and acknowledging that he is God along with bowing. Everyone will acknowledge that Yahweh the I Am is the true God that he claims to be. And it's sobering to contrast between, uh, to think to ourselves, contrasting between these two ways of acknowledging his lordship. One thing that's certain as his word thunders in our ears is that there is no neutrality with him. There is no option to ride the fence and withhold judgment and ignore what he's calling us today. His divine divine authority is coming for you, one way or another. Eventually the day will come in which you and I find ourselves standing before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that day, we will bow. We will bow. We will swear by his name that he is the true God. So what kind of bowing is that going to be for you? Will we do this by faith, by glad submission, even now? Or will we do it only when we're forced to because on that last day he has overpowered and conquered us? If you're not a Christian yet this morning, God is calling you to do exactly what the Thessalonian Christians did in the apostolic era. Paul and his associates had entered Thessalonica and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, had preached Jesus is coming in the flesh, bringing in God's kingdom, his death, his resurrection, his future judgment, and the forgiveness and eternal life that he gives to all who believe in him. And then later on, he's writing to the Thessalonians, referring back to this event in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, and he talks about how he hears other Christians talking about how the Thessalonians responded to the gospel. And he says this, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. I can think of no better way to express what God is calling the nations to do here in our text. Turn to me from idols. I'm the living and true God. Only one God lives. Only one God is true. So turn away from idols to serve and worship him. Turn away from idols to put your hope in his son Jesus who died to take away our sins and who was raised from the dead and who will yet return from heaven. And this is what some of the people in Thessalonica did when Paul preached Christ to them. And he's reflecting back on that positive reception. And if you're not a Christian today, this is exactly what God is calling you to do now. Leave behind your futile gods. Stop depending on things that can't save you, whether they are gods with actual God names like Allah or Brahma 
or secular gods that are more common in our day and in our place, like relationships and goods and career and country. God is saying, I alone can save you. I sent my son to rescue sinners. One day I'll bring all into judgment. So now, now today, look to me, trust me, be done with that futility and know life indeed in me, your creator. Turn away, turn your back on anything that isn't Jesus Christ and turn it to him and rely on him. Receive him as your rescuer from sin and death and as the master over your life who has all authority rightfully over you. Now, for those of us who have turned to Christ in faith, God's word addresses us too. We've already seen how idolatry continues to nip at our heels and our hearts keep finding themselves tempted toward our false gods. So for those of us who know Christ, his word for us today is keep your heart turned toward me. Keep your knee gladly bowed under my lordship. The very last words of 1 John are the message of the day for us. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. How do we do this? Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. This is a battle of our hearts. That's how we keep ourselves from idols, or that's how we fall into idolatry. Be jealous. Protect your heart against idols. Be vigilant and take notice of your passions and loves and desires and disappointments. Notice how things affect you. Sometimes if something disappoints us or frustrates us and the response is way out of proportion, and that can be an alarm bell. Like, why did I respond so extremely to that, to that threat or that problem? Maybe God is alerting you to an idol that you're struggling with. Make the Lord the only foundation of life, hope, strength, and joy. Now, we can enjoy created things. They were actually given to us to enjoy. And, and in a misguided attempt to flee idolatry, we could cut ourselves off from God's good gifts. A few weeks ago, I mentioned the three transcendental, timeless values of truth, goodness, and beauty. And argued that these are the three ultimate things that we're always seeking in our worship. We're looking for these in God or somewhere else. And God, the creator, the true God, is in his very essence, fathomless truth and goodness and beauty. And so when we find little drops of these qualities scattered about creation, we can enjoy them and savor them as echoes of the infinite. Many of us may listen to music that's made by non-Christians who have no knowledge of God. Just this last week, I spent a lot of time listening to music, and there's one band in particular I was really enjoying. I find their work incredibly creative and skillful. I love what they come up with, but they're definitely not Christians. Despite the darkness of their hearts and their rejection of their creator, which is sad, they make music that reflects the beauty of their creator, despite themselves. Now, we do have to be careful about what's happening in our hearts. I could let this music lead my heart away from him, divert my worship somewhere else, or I could listen, and I, I found myself facing this choice a few times, marveling at how good they were, and going, I can listen with awe and gratitude at the one who made them, at the one who makes music possible, who made this playground of, of notes and rhythm and everything on which for, uh, for us to play as sub-creators under him. These artists are participating in his creativity with their own lesser forms of creativity. And this is one of many possible examples of using and appreciating God's creation without worshiping it. 
How good is our God to offer such a merciful salvation to his enemies, to beckon us, his people, to return to him yet again from our wandering. And this call in verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. This is the message that he is even now broadcasting throughout the nations of the world. And I've said it before, but don't overlook the the weirdness and craziness of the fact that we are on the other side of the world from where these words were given. 2,700 years later, we're reading them as scripture and we're marveling at, at how they reveal God. This is exactly what he's getting at. And this, this word is supposed to be traveling the world and reaching the nations just as it's reached us. This is the message that missionary, uh, the missionary labor of Christians taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lands and people who haven't yet heard of him, they're carrying this out. They're extending it further. When Jesus told his disciples to go into all the nations to make disciples in Matthew 28, he wasn't inventing a new project. This is the fulfillment of God's plan for the nations that he's been articulating all the way back to Genesis. So Jesus, when, when he gives this great commission, he's just extending the missionary heart of God that, that bursts from our text this morning. Come and have life. He's saying, go out and tell people to come and have life in me. This is why we support missionaries like the Destins and Haiti and the Mitchells in Papua New Guinea. This is why God has placed certain non-believers in your life and in my life around us so that he can extend this offer of salvation to people who are miserable in their idolatry, even through us. Turn from those false gods who cannot help you. Come and know true life and fellowship with me, your creator. So we're now seeing even more clearly why we should turn our hearts from idols to the living and true God. But God is not done persuading us. He has one final appeal for his closing argument. So third, in verses 24 and 25, he lays out the results of accepting or rejecting his offer. He lays out the results of accepting or rejecting his offer. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. In these last two verses, God describes the outcome of his saving mission. And the first descriptor, the first half of verse 24, is regarding himself. What will happen to his reputation? It will be known and confessed that he alone is the fountain of all righteousness and strength. Now, righteousness has cropped up all throughout this text and in the surrounding context. All the way back in verse 13, it's the manner in which he says he'll call Cyrus, I'll call him in righteousness. In verses 19 and 23, he uses this word righteousness to describe the truthfulness of his words. And in verse 21, it describes an attribute of his nature as the one who saves, a righteous God and a Savior. So when the dust settles, one thing will be abundantly clear. The Lord alone is righteous. He always does what's right. He always speaks what's right. Uprightness is his very being. He never missteps. He never does evil. He never lies. Also, the world will see his strength, that he alone is the one who controls history according to his purposes and his promises. If the outcome of his salvation will be that the world sees his righteousness and his strength, 
What will be the outcome for those who cling to their idols and refuse his offer? His enemies. This is what the second half of verse 24 is about. They shall come and be ashamed, those who were incensed against him. They'll come to his judgment seat and they'll face a sentence of shame. As we saw in verse 16 earlier, they'll be put to shame and confounded. Trusting in powerless gods instead of the one true God can't lead anywhere but shame. It's like trusting a failing bridge to hold up your weight. Or it's like investing your money in a Ponzi scheme. Or it's like staking your reputation on a lie. It can't help but end in shame. There's no other outcome. Your gods will fail you. They'll leave you cold and alone and bitterly disappointed. More than that, though, you'll remain apart from your creator who is the fountain of all good and truth and beauty. What will be the outcome contrasting from that in verse 25 for the offspring of Israel, which in this context must refer to all those, not only Israel, but of the nations who receive his saving promises by faith. Everyone who responds to verse 22, what will be the outcome for them? Justification and glory. And justification means the standing of righteousness, the status before God of being righteous. And look, verse 24, all righteousness belongs to the Lord. It must come to others as a gift. We're counted righteous in union with Christ. And we'll hear about this later on in Isaiah 53, 11. My servant will make many to be accounted righteous. This is how we're saved. All the righteousness belongs to God. And yet he counts it to us as well and he justifies us in his son. And glory here means praise, ascribing glory to God our Savior. And this is a heart's response to receiving everything. All righteousness, all strength, all mercy, all life from the Lord. It's a heart that says everything, everything comes from you, God. When he shows his power and his righteousness and salvation, when he extends mercy and calling the nations, turn to me and have life. And when he asserts his good and life-giving authority as the Lord, we come and stand in awe of him. And so may it be with us. The Lord has taken us to court and shown us why we should turn our hearts away from idols to the living and true God. In Jesus Christ, he has issued this call to all of us. Turn away from your false gods that cannot help you. Turn away from your false gods that always disappoint and fail you. Turn away from your false gods that exhaust you because you have to carry them. Turn your heart to my son, Jesus Christ, and have life. Turn to the one who was crucified for sinners and be saved. Turn to me because I'll carry you. Come to me and be counted righteous in the unfailing righteousness of my son. Turn to God for the first time or the thousandth time and rely on his sure word and wait for his life-giving presence. Turn to him and expect a future not of shame, but of glory. And turn to him with a heart overflowing in praise. Let's pray. Our God, we acknowledge with gladness that all righteousness and strength are from you. We adore you as the merciful Savior who is righteous and could righteously condemn us for our wandering from you to false gods. 
but who also has in righteousness crucified your son in our place and granted us his righteousness. God, we pray that you would convince our hearts at the deepest level of the utter futility of any substitute for you. Show us how you are the fountain of everything good. Show us how sweet it is to be near to you, to know you as our God, to pray to you, to commune with you. We pray if any don't yet know Christ, you would show them, you would open their hearts to see the truth of their need of Christ and his all sufficiency for them. Bring them to him in faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.